Welcome to the RGG EDU podcast, where they talk a little photography and drink a lot of whiskey. Season three of the RGG EDU podcast is brought to you by Smug Mug. Yeah, they got a ridiculous grin and the name is funny, but Smug Mug is serious about photography. If you're ready to upgrade your photo game online, get your ass over to SmugMug.com to see where the pros are storing, showing, and selling their images. In this episode and the final episode of the season, we're joined by Moose B. Peterson, Rob Grimm, and Renee. We're all here. Hello. So Dave Black wants us to ask you, what does the B stand for? Well, it's B. Moose Peterson, and and B stands for bull, of course. (laughs) So the B's before Moose. Yeah, that's my first legal first name. It starts with a B. Yeah. Starts Starts with with a B. B. Yeah. But it's a secret. Well, we'll see how smart you are. What do you think it is? (laughs) Bartholomew. Not even close. Um, Bullwinkle. No. Uh. <laughs> but that was the password once for Pop Photo. They were so proud of themselves when they, they said your password's going to be Bullwinkle. I go, wow, that's original. <laughs> oh, you're funny. <laughs> yeah. So, Moose, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we've been long fans of your work, and uh, we've had a lot of Nikon ambassadors on the show, so it's it's good to have, you know, one more because we're going to try and get all of them at some point. Well, I appreciate you inviting me and being here. So yeah. cool. So you've had quite a career in photography. Let's <laughs> let's go back to the early days. Mm-hmm. How did you get into photography? You know, it was never a grand design, just the way life unfolded. Uh, from my grandfather all the way down, they were all shutter buggers. But nobody actually tried to make a living from it. And I was the, the black sheep of the family that said I'd go radical and do something unconventional rather than to business or some other more conventional thing. So it's been forever. It's not like it's it just happened. It's been since I can remember. And w- what sort of work did you get into at first? What were you making a living doing? Well, uh, making a living is a whole nother uh, definition when it comes to photography, but I've been wildlife since day one. You know, I did as a, going to school as an assistant, I did a lot of fashion assisting down in L.A., but Wildlife has been it since day one. So how has wildlife photography changed over the, those 40 years? Oh, everything's changed in wildlife photography as far as the gear and the actual end usage and the customer or the client, but the actual wildlife, other than it either reducing or going extinct, hasn't changed. Have you photographed something that's now extinct? I have seven extinct species in my files. Wow. What are they? What are they? Well, most of them are kangaroo rats. One's a beetle and one's a fish. A so, beetle? Mm-hmm. What what caused a beetle to go extinct? Loss of habitat, which is typically yeah. what is why most things go extinct. It's total loss of a place to live. I mean, their house is gone. It's, that's that. Wow. Mm-hmm. So who are your who hires a wildlife photographer? What sort of clients do you work? Nobody with? hires. No one does. That's not what I do. We've been self employed and doing self assignments since day one. So no one's ever hired me to go out and do something. That's a that's a very romantic myth. But if yeah. if, if you're not out there. Um, working uh, every day. I mean, the, the for a long time, we said you woke up every day looking for a new job. Yeah. That was a wildlife photographer. So think, you have to go out and find it. I think self-assignment for a lot of people is hard to do and give them that, that kind of um, – some people, it, it's easy for them to work for somebody else. So how, how do you, have you gone about a 40-year career giving yourself those assignments and giving yourself tasks in order to make your artwork? Well, uh, you know, my, my dad was uh, – also self-employed in a totally different field. And so I grew up with a simple work ethic, one that a lot of people didn't grow up with and people still don't have. 
So you have to be totally aware. Uh, for example, I'm constantly watching the news. Uh, the news cycle uh, detects a lot of things that's going on. Uh, back in the 70s and 80s when I started out, you know, you had sitcoms. And sitcoms were about four minutes to five minutes longer than they are now. Mm -hmm. So you had longer articles, more text, more photographs. As that sitcom duration shortened, they wanted less words, less photographs. So you have to be aware of a lot of things when it comes to self-assignment. Uh, next, is it uh, technically newsworthy, for lack of better terms? So for wildlife, I've always stayed in tune with what's happening with endangered species, threatened species. Uh, when I started out, it was called black environmentalism. Everybody was like gloom and doom. And I totally went the other direction because gloom and doom won't, it just depresses people. They don't mm -hmm. want to get involved. So we've always looked at the bright side of things and things that have that are positive as much as we could. So it's just all those things have to go into then the economics of you've got to get there, got to have the gear, time on the ground. All those things are just wrapped in what's called a self-assignment. But you have to uh, you have to have a lot of confidence in yourself that you can actually produce what you need to produce, the time that needs to be produced. And with critters, you know, I've been skunked more times than I've been rewarded with. <laughs> What's going on? Because you can plan all you want. doesn't mean that when you get there, the critter is going to show up. Right. Or uh, show up and do something that is, you know, photographable or interesting. I was, from the very beginning, worked with biologists. And that was a key part of, of everything I did as a wildlife photographer. From learning about the subject to being in the right place at the right time. Yeah, I've always thought that, that uh, photography is one of the coolest professions. Not because of just what you get to do, but because you get what you learn. You learn about so many different things. So mm -hmm. what, what have been some of the things that you've just amazed you about wildlife that you never would have had access to not being a photographer? Well, uh, I'm very naturally curious and I was very fortunate to be raised in the Sierra where I live now full time, uh, where we raised our family. And the, uh, the curiosity has always been a big part of it. You know, why, why would they do such things? Uh, I, as a little kid, we, my dad was in the World War II in Korea. He was a navigator. So we would lay on the blanket at night, watch the stars, and look at those things. And you'd see bats going by. So we would throw little rocks up in the air, and the bats would follow them down. They would sit there and harass my sister. So just watching nature be what it does to survive has always fascinated me. So I've seen – I've had rattlesnakes curl up underneath my uh, tripod. I've had uh, – Grizzly bear cubs gnaw on my tripod legs. I've smacked grizzly bears with fly rods. What? Uh, oh, yeah. The, the reality and the perceptions are, are, are – there's a big void in any kind of subject we work with. And so that trying to narrow that void is, is really important. So you can really get a lot closer to these animals than many people think. And Oh, yeah. Really Understanding think. basic biology, you can – get close physically while safeguarding that species welfare. I mean, most people would be totally flipped out that there's a snake wrapped around there. They totally freak out. Yeah. yeah. Rattlesnakes, they can only strike as, as far as they are curled up and if they're not curled up, they can't strike. Um, and then when you see something like a rattlesnake that's got its tongue out all the time, you know, it's being stressed because that's, they're sensing the air. So if they're just sitting there, that's boring. People don't want to see that because they're just sitting there. If you stressed them out, then you've done something wrong biologically. So it's the same with bats. When you see a bat with their mouth open, you know it's being stressed. Hmm. If it's just sitting there with the mouth closed, you know it's, it's calm. So those little things make a difference. And I'm, 
everything I work with, not everything, most things I work with are already in trouble. So anything I do that adds to that trouble is not worth the photograph. So I don't go there. That's why I work with biologists to learn all that. Are there, things, are there things that you can do to help placate the animal to remove that stress from it? To... Just the way you are. Yeah. Critters will tell you instantly if you're doing something right or wrong. It's not like, you know, a gray area. It's either right or wrong. Right. So if you shouldn't be there, they'll let you know. Uh, if you're doing something too fast, they'll let you know. There's definitely that sense, like, you know, with horses, like a horse knows if, if you're not comfortable around mm -hmm. it. Do you think that's true across the, the board with snakes? I mean, can they sense your presence and kind of... Uh, well, you're going at something that scientifically can't be proven mm -hmm. but yeah i've always thought so yeah i'm more interested in your opinion you've worked well, with them so closely I've, and spent so much time so everything i do is, is considered anecdotal because okay. when i take a photograph even though it's a photograph you can see that photograph and because of the standards I had since day one my images are never cropped they're not photoshopped all my critters what you see is what i shot mm -hmm. they can be used as data but it's anecdotal uh, that means you can't simply go out every time and prove that what you just saw will happen every time so it's a one-time occurrence. Um, but the biologists I work with have always said I had a do-little effect. Um, and I always thought, because critters can just sense that I'm absolutely harmless and a goofball, they just <laughs> don't worry about my presence. Because I've seen them with other, same individual with other people act differently. So I always thought, anecdotally, that yes, they, they can perceive a lot of those things. Hmm. Mm -hmm. What's the closest you've come to having a... Maybe like a grizzly bear attack you or something. Nothing. Like that. Nothing. Never. If you ever had that, you've done totally. You were totally screwed up. I've <laughs> never had a grizzly bear give me a bluff charge, give me a cross look. Nothing. What was happening when you slapped one with a with a yeah with a fly rod? How'd so that we were well, we're salmon fishing. Yeah. And uh, we give the bears names so we could talk to each other about what individuals were there. And this one was called Badger Bear because it had markings on its face, looked like a badger, dark and light patches. And we're fly fishing and. Uh, you're pulling up silver salmon, and they see that splash. Their their natural is, you know, go get it. And so he's coming behind me, and I took my fly rod, which is 10 foot long, and I smacked him in the face, and he sat down like a, a scolded dog on his haunches, just kind of looked there, and just sat there. <laughs> so Seriously? Yeah. I don't recommend most people did do you, that. Did you but, think to do that, or was that just really a gut reaction for some Well, if he took the fish off my fly line, then he's going to learn a bad habit. Um, bears, polar bears, grizzly bears, black bears, in generalities, they learn from experimenting. If they get rewarded, then they're going to keep doing that behavior. how they get rewarded. Yeah. If they're not rewarded, okay, or an adverse, in this case, reaction, then they'll go, yeah, not worth it. It's, they're very um, grizzly bears. Any kind of critter you want to look at, it's simply calories in, calories out. That's basic survival for right. everything, for the smallest to the biggest. So if, if they have to put out more calories than the calories they can get back, they're not going to do it. Because uh, for grizzly bear, for example, in the fall, they're just dying to put on weight. I mean, that's the panic. You put on weight so they can go sleep. So if they have to burn up calories and they're not going to get those calories back, they don't go there. Wow, that's mm -hmm. amazing. So what does the average month look like for you? There is no average. There is no? No, oh. thank goodness. All right, so last year, what was your favorite month that stood out? What would you do? Last year? God, it's a long time ago. Um, 2016. <laughs> Within the, well, la the last um, 12 months, what's been the standout month? Well, they're all, they're all standouts, or I couldn't have done this for 40 years. Um, I'm constantly seeing new things, constantly learning new things, and that's what goes into my photography and what keeps me us moving forward. 
Uh, when I say us, uh, my wife Sharon, of course, and our two sons, Brett and Jake. So last year we started uh, another documentary. Uh, so we're we're doing, uh, I guess we could say, moving on or evolving. Uh, I've always lived in the editorial marketplace. That's where I still thrive. You know, about five to seven articles a month get published that I've written and illustrated. And as humanity has moved forward to seeing more things uh, on a moving screen rather than having to read, uh, which is a whole other uh, blog post or a podcast, um, we're trying to move into that as well. So we're last year was uh, the start of our first big uh, documentary. So that was a lot of time spent there, a lot of learning, uh, evolving. And the four of us working together to get that story covered, and we're still not done. It's still in progress, was a big part of it. But, um, you know, it's uh, if I'm not constantly seeing uh, something new, it doesn't have to be a new uh, species or new aircraft or a new landscape, but something new was light or time of year or behavior, um, I probably wouldn't be so uh, voracious and going out all the time. But last year, I was only home about two months out of the, the 12 months. Uh, and home is where I love to be more than anything else. And then I guess it was 2014, I was only home 41 days out of the whole year. Wow. So I'm very fortunate. I have lots of work. Um, but that work comes from lots of hard work. I don't um, – I'm not one for, you know, just sitting around. Uh, the camera is in my hand literally every day, 365. It's never out of my hands. Where do you tend to go when, you're, when your travels take you? Where, where are you going? You know, I've been uh, – most of everything I do is, is, is North America, uh, United States, Alaska. Uh, we have gone to Africa twice, uh, Japan, Australia, uh, Lincoln, uh, London. We're going back again this year, um, August, to uh, do work over in London. But most of it's here in North America. Yeah, that's – you know, the uh, the critters here are, are tons of, of work for myself. I don't need to really go far for wildlife, and we have enough issues here to, to deal with. So there's some crazy people in London. I don't know about the wildlife in London. <laughs> What's taking you over there? Um, we're going over there uh, for the last decade. I've been working with aviation, uh, mostly World War II. Oh, yeah. And so uh, we'll be going over doing a, a workshop with Glenn Dewis. We're going to do a yeah. joint one, and then oh, I... Are you doing the Dunkirk thing? I'm not doing the Dunkirk, no. We're going to go over the Dover Cliffs with a Spitfire Hurricane. Uh, so cool. uh, Duxford, yeah. So I'm not doing Dunkirk. That's that's Glenn's project. But we got other things that we're going to grow out of this. Our, our documentary we're working on uh, is has to do with World War II vets. So we just came back from the Doolittle uh, reunion. Uh, just mm-hmm. got here the other morning for five days of that, and uh, we did uh, 24 interviews with World War II vets during that time, as well as do the uh, ceremonies for the reunion. That's cool. Yeah, we had a chance to sit down and talk with him, and his World War II stuff is really beautiful. Mm-hmm. That's a great series. Yeah, he's really gotten the bug. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's great. It's it's aviation, and the people around it are, are very special, very unique, and it's not really difficult to get bit by the bug once you step in. At what point in your career did you get into aviation? About 10 years ago. And what pulled you into it? It was just another one of those life happen chance uh, great things. Uh, Reno Air Races, which is just up the road from where we live in Mammoth. Uh, Nikon was going to be there for the first time. The D3 had just come out, and they said, you know, I've been wanting to go up there forever, but never had any reason to go there. And the way I operate, I never, uh, like my mom says, I can, I'm never happy with anything off the shelf. I've got to customize it. So in this case, just 
going to Reno and just being one of the, the hundreds of photographers on the wall was not what I want to do. There's no story there. Okay. And so when Nikon went up there, I said, Hey, um, can you get me in, get me a, a pass to get around and do stuff. And I went up there and volunteered, uh, and basically panning is something a white photographer does all the time. It's not like a new trait and getting a photograph sharp without having to crop it with the, the, the props blurred with a long lens. I've been doing it for, you know, at that point, 30 years. So it's kind of a shooting fish in a barrel. And so I went up there, uh, and when you have warbirds about 50 feet away doing 400 miles an hour, it's not really hard to get hooked. You know, uh, <laughs> yeah, they're coming down, they're screaming right at you, they make the turn around you, you get the smell of the abgash, you get to hear the noise, and then you got this this gorgeous photograph. So I, I did it that June, and, and that fall, the, the poster for the races was my photograph, because it was kind of the first time they had an actual photograph where all the elements came together, sharp was blurred, had all that, you know, emotion that goes into racing. Mm-hmm. And I was hooked because the people are just really cool. Uh, I've always been a history buff. So talking to people who, who uh, preserving that history, that know the people who are living history, it was real easy to, just to fall in. So back with conservation, what I want to talk about, there's a lot of controversy going on now with where conservation is going, especially in North America. There's always been controversy <laughs> with conservation. It's not a new thing. Yeah. It's been nonstop. I feel like it's getting... Worse, though, with the EPA potentially going away, where do you see conservation going? <laughs> well, so Sharon and I have been involved in it since the 70s, and there's another number of pieces of California that have been preserved because of our efforts back then. Um, so conservation has uh, always been this black and white, left and right side, and it's been for decades the problem is they just don't come together and compromise. Uh, lock everything up doesn't work, you know. Ripping everything apart doesn't work, but getting together as a compromise doesn't happen. That's because of total lack of education of the entire, you know, community. So conservation as a, as a term, it sounds great, sells papers, but in reality, most of the conservation happens behind the scenes. People don't hear about it because the smart people get together and they, they say, we can make, you know, not detriment what humanity is doing at the same time, preserve and, and help these critters. Uh, but the, uh, the famous climate change, global warming thing, uh, that's a great example of how it's really been blown out of proportions but both sides. Um, did man cause climate change? No. It's a natural process. But did man speed it up and intensify it? For sure. Okay, so we are partially responsible for altering the overall mm-hmm. effect. But nobody can say that. No, you know, we have a, a, a society, no matter what you look at, taking responsibility is just not what we do. Um, and so as long as that's the issue, whether it's whatever the, the topic, it's not going to be solved, uh, especially in a meaningful way. But there's no way you can't say that things aren't changing. Yeah. I, I've seen it firsthand working in the Arctic for so long, uh, the, you, you, it, it is happening. Can we change it and make it better? You bet. Will we? I have real grave doubts because we still can't talk together yeah. uh, in a meaningful way. When I was living in Europe um, and kind of traveling through there, I would always ask, like, you know, where's the wildlife? And it was like a lot of the wildlife all throughout Europe has just been, like, killed off or the habitat has been destroyed. And I was like, man, like, 
we really take things for granted in North America with the diversity of animals that we still have living here. Well, Whereas, most people don't realize since 1970, uh, just quantity-wise, we've lost 50% of our critters on the planet. Wow. So we have 50% less Seriously? numbers. Yes, yeah, since 1970. That's a huge statistic. Where is it the worst? <laughs> it's all bad. I don't it's think all, there's yeah. anything to be labeled the worst. Um, you can go uh, state by state or continent by continent and, and, and see issues. Um, Africa, you know, you have things like lions, giraffes all being slaughtered yeah. strictly for the Aberdeenic trade, you know, yeah. for no other reason. Uh, you have things like uh, Atwater Prairie Chicken down in Texas that, you know, turn of the century, 1900, there's over a million of these birds in Texas. Yeah. Now there's, there's less than two dozen. So you can go yeah. anywhere you want, and you can find issues. Yeah. Aren't there only a few uh, black rhinos left? Uh, could be. Yeah. 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 I'm not up on every critter on the planet. But, you know, it's, it's, it's a two-edged sword. Uh, you've got, uh, you know, the, the places like I mentioned earlier, Sharon and I pres- help with others preserve in California. Great little niches, you know, for these critters that was their, their critical home. But as soon as things change one degree, the very unique biosphere they lived in, even though it was just a city block, has now been changed. So even though we saved that spot in the 70s or 80s, that one degree change, that spot's no longer, no longer a sanctuary. So the problems are you could be very small with a magnifying glass and see the real problems, or you can use, you know, big, big, big vision and see problems affecting everything everywhere. Which includes, you know, us. People. Yeah. You said that you've been involved in saving several things. What are some of the things that you have saved, and how did you go about doing that? What's the process? Well, there's places, there's little sanctuaries like San Francisco Bay or down in the San Joaquin Valley. Um, and the process, has, it's changed a lot. Uh, sadly, a lot of the, the, the biologists that I work with, uh, some have passed away. A lot of them are, are, are quite old and out of the business now, but... Uh, it was a simple way of, of educating those involved, everything from government, private sectors uh, to set aside this property or put money to buy this property. And you had to uh, educate them why it was you know, important. We worked, uh, I have worked with small mammals forever, uh, pocket mice, kangaroo rats, things like that. And they're, uh, people don't, you know, they think of mice, mice, they think of little things in their house or rats. They think of things like the pizza rat in, in New York subways. Um, kangaroo rats uh, Splinter. are called kangaroo rats because they they're motor, they get around like a kangaroo. They hop. They're incredible. Hopping rats? Yeah. They're, they're just incredibly cute. Uh, really adorable little guys. And they're, they're keystone species. Without them, um, for example, the, the giant kangaroo rat, it's the biggest we have in North America. The body's about the size of your fist. The tail's about 12 inches long. Oh. And so when they hop, they actually can swing their tail and, and move 90 degrees in midair to change their direction. Oh. Uh, they live in colonies. They're incredibly industrious. They're farmers. So they uh, harvest the plants. They plant the seeds. They grow. It's a constant 24-7-365 process. Uh, another endangered species, the blood-nosed leopard lizard, lives in their burrows. Uh, another endangered species, the salmon cane uh, antelope squirrel, lives in their burrows. Depends on... The lizard needs the insects that the plants, the kangaroo rat grows. The, the squirrel depends on the plants the squirrel grows. And then another endangered species, the salmon king kit fox, eats the kangaroo rat. So the kangaroo rat goes 
the whole ecosystem goes, the plants, the critters, everything that's there. So it's a good keystone species. So there's a gazillion examples across the globe of that, that, you know, and so you lose one, everything starts falling apart. Dominoes. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you and your wife ever speak at schools or, you know, talk to the younger generation about this kind of thing? We, um, when our kids were younger, especially, uh, not so much now, uh, there's just X amount of time. Um, and so up until the boys left high school, yeah, we were very active. Uh, back then we would rehab little small owls. So I take them into the classroom uh, and they would see the little, you know, they're about the size of a dollar bill, a little bit bigger, screech owls and family owls, things like that. And I take them in there and the, the kids could see and, and we would talk about it. But haven't much since. Uh, we're part of education programs that go to kids. But in the U.S., uh, we can't even get basic U.S. history taught in classes, let alone environmental history. So it's it's a, you can only hit your head against the wall so many times and you say, yeah, it ain't, ain't working. How much does politics play a role in this? I would assume with conservation, you're you're bumping into um, local and federal governmental issues with some regularity. That's probably the one thing that, uh, other than Sharon and my boys, don't realize how much I'm involved with because it's it's very much behind the scenes. Um, it's our political system is very unique, and uh, getting information to those who can make a difference is a challenge. Uh, getting them to listen is a challenge, in part because they're consumers of, of our news cycle like anybody else. And trying to get open the door to education and compromise is it's, it's just a major challenge. So I'm there constantly. Uh, I work with uh, mostly California issues because that's where the biologists that are, are, we're dear friends with are. And, and uh, there's probably more uh, times in a week than I can imagine that I'm getting requests for a photograph or photographs. Uh, and this point, sadly, it's mostly historic records because a lot of the things I have, like the, the critters that are gone or the, the actual habitats that are gone or have been vastly altered, my photographs from back then are the only record. Uh, there's a number of times uh, the Fresno kangaroo rat is an endangered species. And, and when they caught one um, and I just got a phone call. And so I'm driving 12 hours at night to get there to photograph it because that was the last time anybody saw one. And the only time you can see that is in my photographs. Uh, same with the Morro Bay kangaroo rat or Santa Cruz kangaroo rat. Um, and I just told you the story about the giant kangaroo rat. But those are three kangaroo rat species that are gone, that are keystone species. So it's, it's, um, it's the really hard part of what I, Sharon and I do. It's very depressing. There's some days that are just not really good days in the office. When um, we hear uh, a critter's endangered has gone extinct, or one of the vets we've interviewed has passed away, that's not that's the the dark side of what we do. Yes, I, that's interesting. I never would have um, thought about that. I guess in some ways you're going to record the last little bit of history. Mm-hmm. I mean, what you do is now going to be the only record of something that's gone forever. Right. That's why we we kind of feel like sometimes we're in a panic with the World War Two World War Two vets we're working with because. Um, they're not it's, around it's living much, history, yeah. um, and, and, they're, and they're passing away. And when you hear those stories, because they were there at the beach of Iwo Jima during the landing, or they, they flew the, the bombing mission, you know, or just interviewed a guy who was there when the flying the, one of the uh, reconnaissance planes when the, the bomb went off at Nagasaki. Uh, right. So he saw that mushroom cloud with his own eyes. 
So it's it's kind of, you know, you talk to these people and you can see in their face as they relive this history. I mean, and, and one vet I, I did uh, interviewed a week ago, he said after the whole thing was done, he goes, you know, I just, I told you stories that I haven't told in my 20 years of PTSD counseling. And I was like, you've been in counseling for 20 years? I mean, think, think of the effect of what he saw mm-hmm. it had on him that for 20 years he's had to deal with that. What do you think you did or said, what was the connection that you had with him where he was able to get that out to you versus somebody else who's been talking to you for 20 years? Um, well, when I'm doing our, our video interviews, uh, rarely do I ask a question. Uh, I just let him sit there and talk. And I don't really converse other than with my face. So he just saw through what I was saying in my face that uh, I, I really wanted to hear his story. I wanted to preserve his story. Um, and since that interview a week ago Monday, I've never I've not been able to watch Roscoe's interview. I I haven't gone back to look at that tape. It affected me. Mm. Yeah. Do you think using the tactic of not communicating um, allows someone to, to speak without the fear of judgment? Um. Well, the one thing we've learned about a number of these vets is they don't usually start telling their stories to about two years before they pass away. Uh, many of the families have no clue what their, their dad or mom did, uh, especially World War II vets. They came home. They went back to, to, to work in the work ethic they had been raised with, and they just went on to, to build for their families and for the country and our freedoms. So they kind of, uh, by nature, just locked it away. They didn't talk about it. So when they finally get to, you could say, purge it, um, you know, it's not hard to tell from somebody's eyes whether they really want to listen to you or they're just just there. Mm-hmm. So they just they just let it go. Um, since uh, a lot of them, uh, you know, they know my, my father was in World War II in Korea. I, uh, I'm already there taking my time, and I'm not getting paid to be there. You know, these interviews, uh, isn't somebody's not paying me. It's all self-funded. They know there's a sincerity there, um, and that makes a difference too. And being a history buff, I, I know enough about either the battle or the, the, the what they ran a plane or submarine, whatever, that I, 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 I'm educated enough that they can talk about details that maybe otherwise people just wouldn't, wouldn't understand. Yeah. Have you been to any of the locations that are in some of the stories that they're telling? or Not, uh, not yet, uh, especially not in the Pacific, um, which was the, the most brutal Europe was kind of just savage, but Pacific was just brutal. Yeah. It's it's hard for you. We had a a, a tail gunner, Tom, and a, a tail gunner, a B-25. And you got to remember they were kids, right? They're 18, 18 to 20. You know, a 25-year-old was called an old man back then. If you're in the military, they would have called you old man at 25. And so Tom was uh, a tail gunner in a B-25. So we put him in the tail of our B-25, and uh, he got in there. And he was 93. Without my notes, it's hard to remember everybody's age anymore. But I think he was 93. And, you know, 93 is 93, right? I mean, it's, it's not there. like you're a spring chicken. But he shot up the ladder and went all the way back in the tail just like he was 19. He got back there, and he just starts talking. I mean, he's just, just going to town. He's instantly back at that point. And uh, so it didn't take anything than, than the stimulus of that plane. When I was with uh, President Bush, number 41, and his office at Kennedy Bunkport, and uh, 
it just happened that everybody left. It was just me and him. And so I thanked him for a letter he sent my mom. My dad passed away. And uh, talk about that briefly. And I said, so what was it like being a pitching deck of a carrier trying to take off of the TBM? And 41 instantly went right back to being a 19-year-old on that pitching deck in the Pacific. It, it didn't take anything more than just a slight verbal description. And he was off and back in those memories. Just because of like, the attention to detail. Then. Yeah. Oh, and, and at that age, you know, you'd think that, right, they wouldn't remember stuff. Instantly, you, a couple words, they're instantly back at that point. And they remember, you know, 41 is remembering the takeoff speed, the procedures, the, the whole thing. Like he was right there on that deck again. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your camera bag and technology. What do you What do you use, and what advice do you have for photographers just getting into photography? <laughs> uh, the advice is the KISS theorem. You know what that is? Yeah, keep it simple, stupid. Right. So, it, you know, photographers, bless their hearts, love to buy everything that they're told <laughs> they should buy and not really think through uh, two things. Uh, one, who they are as a, as a communicator. Um, a lot of photographers don't think of photography as a means of visually communicating. So they buy tools that really don't work for them. Uh, I mean, if you're, if you're going to be drawing with, with charcoal, you don't go buy out acrylics. It's the wrong tool if you're going to be doing the charcoal. Same thing with, with photography. Uh, so they buy more than they probably should, and they probably buy the wrong thing. Uh, they get caught up, and it's not hard to do, with all the the – or around like that really fast telephoto lens when they probably will never shoot wide open. So why spend the thousands of dollars to do that? Um, so my camera bag, usually when I go out with photographers, I have usually the less, least amount of gear. Other photographers with me have more. Uh, and the other part is because I'm in business, right? It's a capital investment. And no matter how you write it off your taxes, you still have to earn the money to right. do that. And the rule of thumb is for every dollar you spend, you have to earn five. So my eight hundred five my eight hundred five six lens is eighteen thousand dollars. Wow! So to buy that lens, I had to have five times that I have earned it. Um, so I'm very picky about my gear. Uh, I have very few lenses. Uh, I shoot with the Nikon D5 principal body, and for critters, the eight hundred five six is probably my uh, main lens. Then it'd be the two hundred to four hundred. After that, there's just a few lenses in the bag: seventy two hundred, one hundred five one four, twenty four one four, fourteen twenty four, sixteen fish. I'm sure I'm missing a couple lenses, but that's it. That's about it. It's a pretty. That's a pretty good collection pretty of lenses. Bag, yeah. Pretty decent. So you're you're hiking through with all of that. Wrong, wrong, wrong word. No hiking. No hiking. <laughs> okay. If you're spending time hiking, you're not shooting. Right. I mean, it's just simple yeah. time economics. And and the one thing I I don't have is a ton of time. I wish I had you know five times the time I have to go out and do what I want to do. Because even while I'm sitting here talking to you, I know things in the back of my mind that are unfolding that I'm not photographing. And that, that drives me nuts. Yeah. Yeah. So hiking, not hiking. Um, and then the other thing is when I go out and, and photograph a critter, I'm going out to photograph that critter. So I have the specific gear for that critter or that landscape or that, that plane. I don't take my whole bag with me. Um, I already know basically in my mind what I'm going to do and how I'm going to do it. So I take the tools just for that moment. So you're very purpose-driven in going out. There's, it, there's not well, much yeah. exploration in that sense. You're, you're very purpose-driven. The research is done long before I get on site. Yeah. So I spend a lot of time doing that research. That thing that a lot of people don't like to do anymore called reading. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people don't want to read words anymore. They want to read pictures. Um, or, or sure, video I'll content. 
Yeah. 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 I think it's true. I, I don't mm-hmm. think a lot of people like enjoy or even know how to really sit down and digest a set of words. But that's a work ethic, right? Yeah. I mean, it's point blank. And I probably would offend somebody by saying it, but the work ethic mostly sucks. They're, they just go out there and hope it happens. Mm-hmm. And hope doesn't pay bills. You've got to make it happen. When you're out photographing critters, do you, I mean, on an, any particular wildlife shoot, are you just literally going out to a location that you pre-scouted and then sitting down and waiting for the day and hoping something happens? Or Well, there... there's only one thing on the planet I'm the best at better than anybody else, and that's sitting on a rock looking at a hole in the ground for 18 hours. I am the best, and there's no one better than me than that. Do you ever bait some of the animals? I mean, I, Never I, bait. Yeah, I've heard of some wildlife photographers that, you know, if they're shooting carnivores, they'll put out a little bit, bit of meat. Mm-hmm. To see if they can bring the yeah no never bait never do anything that's going to alter their they change their behavior mm-hmm. their behavior that way. That's so good. before we did a Doolittle reunion, um, and literally, uh, the, my truck is at the airport where it lives most of the time. My bags were in their packs, so I was in Nebraska shooting uh, greater prairie chickens and sharp-tailed grouse for five days. Came home, changed bags in the truck in the parking lot, went to the Doolittle, and then I'm gonna go back to that truck, change bags one more time. And I'll go back and I'm going to photograph two aircraft in Nevada and then photograph another aircraft in California. Go back to the truck, change bags again, go off to Cape May. Wow. So that is, yeah. That's a lot of faith in your vehicle not getting broken into while you're gone. <laughs> well, <laughs> I drive a 1989 Ford truck with almost 400,000 miles on it. So people have no clue what's in the back of it. <laughs> well, they do now. Yeah. <laughs> Don't yeah. give them the license plate number on this podcast. Well, you know, the uh, the uh, the folks at, at the airport, they I've been, you know, it's not new. My truck's not new to them. So from TSA all the way to the parking yeah. tenants all know who Moose right. is. So, yeah. Seriously, not a problem. How, how do you have the patience to sit on a rock for 18 hours? That's yeah. a that's the long game. How, how do you do that? <laughs> well, you got, you got that, headphones? Or you just, that takes, that no, takes, no, no. no. Um, anything you do that, that if you lose your attention to that hole in the ground, you'll miss the opportunity. Yeah. Um, so, no. Um, if you're not totally in love with what you're doing, it shows in your photographs. It shows in everything you do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, sitting out in somewhere in the middle of nowhere – with no modern world and just watching things. And since I know the history, I, my mind would imagine like uh, in Nebraska, you know, the people are coming from Omaha going westbound through South Pass, looking at that and saying, what would it be like back then? This is what they would have seen. What, you know, so my imagination just takes me off places mm-hmm. and it's not really hard to do. Um, I, a lot of the ideas, things I'm going to do, whether it be a book, an article, blog post, whatever, come to me during those times. So I'll, I'll write that note. I always have a pad of paper and pen. I'll write down myself a note. But uh, yeah, I guess you could say I'm just self-absorbed in, in where I am and, and time flies. Patient. I would say patient. Ask you my know. boys. Not patient. <laughs> not patient. You're not, maybe not patient with them, but with the critters, it sounds a little different. <laughs> we never have had that discussion how patient I was with them. But since, uh, we, you know, the... Uh, Your wife over there is going... She's the patient one. <laughs> But uh, our youngest lives in Spokane, or our oldest lives in Spokane, our youngest lives in Bozeman. They don't live at home. They haven't since they, they went off to college. But we see them uh, at least and work together on some project at least once a month, and we are texting every day. So whatever it, it did, it didn't seem to adversely affect the relationship. So <laughs> it's okay. So they're really involved with you. 
Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, they have their own work. Uh, uh, Jake, our youngest, is a still photographer, wildlife and aviation. Uh, our oldest, Brent, is a videographer and uh, doing um, mostly aviation uh, and the vet stuff. So, yeah, they have their own companies, their own business, but we come together on projects to work as a group. We, uh, you know, basically they know dad's, you know, oddities in life, and they know how to compensate for those when it needs to be or how to work with them when it needs to be. Uh, so we do a lot of things, I guess you could say telepathically. They know, and I know them, and it works really well. And, uh, you know, like an event, a Doolittle uh, just now, uh, you know, Sharon's out there. She talks to the vet, and we can tell from what she's doing without hearing because the planes, you can't hear anything. Then instantly we can see what, who it is, what we're going to do, and all three of us get what we need to gear to go do that interview, um, whether it be three-minute or 41-minute, and we just get it done um, very quickly, effectively, and, and uh, almost, you know, seamlessly. It must be nice to have that. First of all, you have that family connection, but then that transfers into the working world. It must be nice for you to be so seamless. That we have a lot of fun. Yeah. So, yeah, it works really well. <laughs> and, uh, the, you know, they uh, – this year, Brent was uh, two weeks old when he first went out for with wildlife with me. And Jake is still the youngest American to have a permit to, to handle endangered species. So they wow. – we they back through uh, K through 12 – there was these two years where they actually had more days out of school than was legal. They weren't supposed to graduate. Really? But uh, they always had to take their homework with them. So after we worked all day at night, they had to do homework in the trailer. And they actually came out much better ahead than if they had been in the classroom. And all the teachers supported what they're doing because, they're, I mean, they're out in the field not only just with critters, but the biologists are working with are all PhD, most of them are professors. So they're not like working with dorks they're working with these people who are actually <laughs> pushing the boys to do a lot of things that you wouldn't so yeah it was it was you know they liked it i liked it jaron liked it wow. <laughs> that was a horn i have a feeling that we've run out of time <laughs> either that or the room's about to be flattened <laughs> Uh, talk to us about incredible. your workshops. You do put on workshops. Uh, we do the year. As, as many workshops as the schedule allows. Yeah. Uh, mostly wildlife, um, some landscape, and some aviation. And it's basically uh, the workshops are to give folks uh, the ability uh, and the possibility and the opportunity, if they want to take advantage of it, to see what it is that I do, um, both behind the camera and the computer and the business side of it, if they wanted to go on with that. We have some really great folks that join us. So we have a lot of laughs. We learn a lot and uh, have a good time. Where do those usually take place at? What state? They're all over the, the, the country. All over? Uh, yeah. Uh, we're very fortunate with the freedoms and, and what we have here in the United States. We have so many treasures still that are out there to go out and see, uh, be it critters, places, or, or aircraft. So it all depends what's happening. And vast times, I... I we set it up so it's the optimal possible yeah. uh, environment. So the photography, you could say, is um, as simple as possible, so the learning can be the maximum. Nice. And where can people go to find out about your workshops? Well, I'm real simple. I use the KISS theorem. So they can find me on Twitter and on Facebook and on YouTube just searching Moose Peterson. Moose Peterson. And then the website, more complicated, it's moosepeterson.com. <laughs> That's pretty complex. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, your website is very in-depth, very thorough. There's so many sections. There's so many pages. 
You do a lot of writing. You put a lot of energy into creating that. I do a lot of writing. Um, well, we were the literally the first wildlife photography website on the planet. Oh, wow. So we had it back in the early 90s. So there's over – oh, it's almost 4,000 pages to that website now. Wow. Holy cow. Incredible. Yeah, that's amazing. What's yeah. it like keeping that up to date? Um, well, there are certain times, certain nights where I just don't want to blog. Um, yeah. But it's not – that difficult you know uh, if it's just like our, our our third grade teachers taught us that if you want to write about something you have to know it um and since i'm always constantly shooting uh, content is really not a challenge yeah i'm always out there doing it and then a lot of things are people come up and say you know how do you do xyz i go mm, blog post and what Jake and I call, we call those cheap blog posts because we didn't have to think about it. Somebody just handed it to us. Yeah. We have to go find the photograph, um, which to me is always going to be a, a, a current new photograph. I don't really put out old stuff. I'm constantly shooting. You know, I've got uh, in the last seven days, we have uh, two terabytes of video and I've got about probably about 16,000 stills. So constantly coming wow. up with new material is not hard. This, the transition from, from film to digital must have really been freeing for you. Uh, shooting video, I love it. Yeah. The rest of it is total shit. Um, what? <laughs> I don't want to edit it. I don't want to file it. I don't want to uh, – that part of the back end of video, I can't. It just That's why I'm, I'm blessed to have Brent. He likes that part. Yeah. But organizing – you know, I take one picture. I know that goes – that rock goes in the rock file. You shoot a 30-second video clip, you could have rocks, trees, clouds – so filing yeah, it, tagging, and yeah. it's like, <laughs> <laughs> don't, I just don't, I, it's not what I can do. I was, was going to say, how do, you, how do you, from 40 years of work, your file management system is either completely chaos or very, very thought out and thorough. Everybody can go in my office and find anything they want, anytime. That's impressive. So, no, it's self-survival. Yeah. Uh, my, the very first photographer I worked for, uh, he hired me as an assistant in the field kind of assistant and, and uh, he saw I was kind of an organized person. So he went back to his office and this is the days of film and he opened up his filing drawers, and all those, all these yellow boxes. And he said, I need you to organize this. I'm like, no way, you know? And then I went back that night to Sharon and said, okay, ain't going to let that happen to us. So since day one, everything is, is organized. There's, there's nothing you can't find when it comes to a still. So what you're saying is Sharon's been keeping you on the straight and narrow since the very beginning. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> she's shaking her head no. We've been together 42 years, so yeah. Well, congratulations. Yeah, That's fabulous. So. Mm-hmm. You're every bit of like America's version of Steve Irwin. <laughs> no. Has anyone ever told you that? No, I'm just a photographer, a simple guy. I think yeah. maybe cooler, though. Yeah, I think, I think yeah. so, too. Yeah, Definitely cooler. Oh, I appreciate the compliment. <laughs> yeah. Well, Moose, it's been awesome talking to you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah this has been a lot of fun. Yeah, we we really enjoyed the conversation. It's good to talk about conservation, you know. So we we do appreciate it. Any last final thoughts? Thank you. This yeah. has really been a nice yeah. conversation. My your pleasure. Awesome. Thanks. To download this uh, podcast and the entire season, you can go to rggedupodcast.com. And also head over to Moose's website and sign up for a workshop. Yes. Learn about conservation. Yeah, it's yeah. good. Yeah. All right. All right, we'll see you later. Bye. Okay, podcast is over. You can turn it off now. Go take some pictures or whatever you photographers do now.